You want to open your Bibles to John chapter 11. I want to read there a story that uh, many of us know well. It might be uh, new to some of you, but most of us probably know the story pretty well. John chapter 11, verse 17. It says, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to, Mary and Mar- to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Mary said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. There are sermon illustrations uh, and stories that get passed down through generations. And I want to tell you one of those stories this morning. This is not my own illustration. I want to give you a little bit of history of the illustration uh, so that you know the context of where it's coming from. Uh, The bones of this story, I'm going to tell you John's version of the story that's related to another man I'll talk about, his version of the story that goes back to the original. So you're getting the story third hand, and each one of us have made our own little tweaks to it. So the bones of this story go back to 1916. A young Swiss pastor by the name of Karl Barth was asked to preach in the neighboring town where he had pastored for five years. He was 30 years old. Karl Barth, who would later become one of the greatest theologians of, or the most influential theologians of the 20th century, stood in his neighboring town. He was asked by a friend to preach, and he gave a sermon illustration very similar to what I'm about, the story I'm about to tell y'all. But the reason I want you to know the history of this story is, is because it comes in a moment, 1916, Switzerland, These are important pieces of that story and important pieces of that moment. One writer wrote about this illustration. He said, a few miles away, the rest of Europe was on fire with war, a war epidemic with lies and carnage that mark what one writer at the time called the irreparable termination of what was humane in Western society. The bones of this story, uh, as I said, come from Karl Barth. Um, I first was exposed to it through Eugene Peterson, and so I will tell you uh, that uh, it goes from Karl Barth to Eugene Peterson to myself. And the germ, uh, Peterson wrote, uh, the the germ of his story, the antidote, uh, is the same. And so that's kind of where I'm coming to this story. So let me tell you about, let me tell you the story. The story is about a warehouse. And in this warehouse, there was everything that someone could ever need. And people had lived in this warehouse for generations. And they had been in this warehouse that everything they ever needed was in this warehouse. Life was good in the warehouse. All of life was consumed in the warehouse. 
generations had passed through this warehouse. And they all lived there together. One day, a little boy just gets a little curious and he pulls out a step stool and he takes the step stool up to one of the walls and he climbs out and he gets a piece of cloth out and he wipes away some of the grime of the window. And the little boy peers out of the window and as he peers out in the window, he sees that outside of the warehouse, there is a bustling city. There are people going here and there. He continues to watch for a while, and as he looks out this window up on his tiptoes on that step stool, he looks out that window, and he notices a man, and the man stops in the street. Stops in the street and points up to the sky. So the little boy, intrigued at what the man is pointing at, gets off his step stool, takes a step back, looks up, and sees what you and I see, a a ceiling. So he goes back over, he looks. Now it's not just the man who's pointing up, but there are other people pointing up and they're pointing up at something going on in the sky and the little boy steps back, he looks up. What is there? It's ceiling. So the little boy climbs back up and he goes back to the window and tries to peer, but he can't see anything past the window seal. Well, this little boy invites some of his friends up to see what's going on, and they look out the window and they see what's going on. Well, this goes on for a little while, and the little boy does something a bit dangerous. He finds a corner of the warehouse. And he goes to the corner of the warehouse, and he finds something sharp, and he bends down, and he gets down on his hands and knees at the edge of the warehouse, and he cuts out a hole And the little boy climbs out of the hole. And as he climbs out of the hole, he is opened up to a new world, an expansive world. He looks up to see what is in the sky. And the little boy explores for a little while, and he comes back. And he comes back and he tells his friends, y'all need to see what's out here. And so the children, they begin going back and forth, and they begin sneaking out. Well, they finally begin to tell their parents about what's going on as they sneak in and out. Eugene Peterson writes about this story. And he says to us, he says, when we open the Bible, we enter the totally unfamiliar world of God. And so Eugene Peterson and Karl Barth are using this illustration to talk to us about how we enter a real world. And Karl Barth in 1916, as he stood before that congregation, what he was telling them was, was that they are living in a world that is oppressed with war, that is oppressed with lies, but there is a real world. And that there is a hole cut in the side of the warehouse and they could climb through and find out about the real world. And that hole in the side of the warehouse, do you know what it was called? Their Bible. It was the story of the world as it actually is. And so Eugene Peterson tells us when we open the Bible, we enter a totally unfamiliar world of God, a world of creation and salvation stretching endlessly above and beyond us. Life in the warehouse never prepared us for anything like this. And then he says this, typically, the adults in the warehouse scoff at the tales of the children bring back. After all, they are completely in control of the warehouse world in ways they could never be outside 
and they want to keep it that way. This is a, a famous illustration, and, and it's used to kind of say a couple things to us. And what I want you to hear today is, is that it is an illustration that applies to us today. But I want to take a little bit of liberty with the illustration, because one of the things we'll talk about in just a little bit is that Karl Barth does some things, and he names that little boy. And we're going to talk about that little boy's name in a little bit. But if we imagine ourselves as a part of this story and we imagine ourselves as the children and our friend has gone out and has invited us into this world, what we also know as a part of this story is, is that this hole in the side of the building wasn't just created by this little boy, but this hole inviting us into a new life was created by someone else. I want to read a passage of scripture that, again, that we probably know pretty well. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. This is a story, and I want you to hear it today as the story of someone inviting you out into a new world. In Matthew chapter 4, it says, as he was walking along the sea, who is, who is the he in this story? Y'all remember? This is Jesus. So as Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, his brother John, and they were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing the nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, let's go back to, to verse 14 just, just for a moment. And I've changed this to the Revised Standard Version because it's the language I think most of us are probably a little bit more comfortable with. I want to go back to this verse because I want you to see something. Let's imagine just for a moment, as we look at this verse, as we look at, look at verse 19, go down to the next one, Emily, real quick. Sorry. As we look at this verse, I want you to read this verse and imagine in this verse that Jesus is down on his knees outside of that hole saying, let me show you the world. Let me show you what the world really looks like. And I've highlighted a couple words or a few different phrases in this, this verse, and I want to talk to you about this. And some of you have heard me talk about this before. Earlier, uh, we had the passage read from Mark chapter 8. In this uh, winter, we're going to go through Mark's gospel, and we're going to talk about discipleship. And I would argue that my two favorite verses that come from Jesus about what it is to be a disciple, one we've already read this morning, take up your cross and follow me. But here's the other one. And this one might be, to me, the most foundational understanding of what it means to be a disciple. Because in this verse, there are three movements that I want you to see. And some of you have heard me talk about this before, because I absolutely love this. And I think it's about as clear as it can be. We have three movements. The first movement, you'll see there highlighted in red. Jesus says to them, follow me. The next movement we see highlighted there, and that's, I think that's yellow, I will make you. Okay, so first movement, follow me. Second movement, I'm, I'm going to, to change you. Okay, 
We're gonna talk about each one of these again in just a moment. And then the third movement that's highlighted there in green, I'm going to change you. What am I going to change you into? Fishers of men. So three movements. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. So let's talk about these three just real quick. So what is it to be a disciple? We learn from this passage that what it is to be a disciple is first off, what's the first movement? Follow me. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus. Y'all good with that? A disciple is somebody who follows Jesus. They hear the call. If you go back to these verses, it's incredible to go through how Matthew lays this out. We read two stories today. We read about Andrew and Simon Peter and what was the calling upon them? Follow me. What did they do? Immediately dropped their nets and did what? They went. They followed. The very next story, we have James and John. What happens with James and John? Jesus says, follow me. What do they do? They drop everything and they follow him. If you flip over just a few stories later, we have the calling of a man named Levi that we call Matthew. He's a tax collector. What happens in that story? Jesus says, follow me. What do they do? What does he do? He follows him. The very first part of being a disciple is to be one who follows Jesus. To follow Jesus is to obey Jesus. Y'all hear me? To follow Jesus is to also obey Jesus. Listen to these words. They're not up on the screen, but John chapter 14, 23 and 24. Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and he will come to him and make home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The words that you hear are not mine, but from the father who sent me. If anyone loves me, he'll do what? He will keep my words. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus, but to be a disciple and to follow Jesus is to obey him. But hear this. This is where we're going today. To follow Jesus, it, it's not easy. There's no point in this story where God or Jesus just tells us this is easy. We're going to come back to that. Secondly, a disciple is someone who has been changed by an interaction with Jesus, okay? So the first part of this understanding is follow me. The second piece, and I will make you. There's going to be change that comes about. I'm going to change who you are. Jesus is very clear that he is going to shape them into his own image, that he is going to shape them into new people, that everything that they know, in these stories, fishing, they drop their nets and follow him. It is who they are. And Jesus says, I am going to shape you. I'm going to give you something new to do. This is what you are used to. I'm going to change it. In the church, sometimes we use the, the word job, but a better word we use is a vocation. To follow Jesus is to be given a new job or to be given a new vocation. And most of the time we see this, we're also given a new name as a part of it. I was just reflecting uh, over the past couple weeks, and I don't know why this story kind of came back to me. 
But there's a, there's a really long, there's a long story that goes along with this one, and I won't tell you the whole story. I'll tell you the, the very brief, quick version, because y'all don't want to hear the whole thing. But when I was, when I was called into ministry as a teenager, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I've, I've told y'all this part before. I just thought, like, I'll be a youth pastor. Uh, no offense to Pastor James, but I thought, like, youth pastor, the youth ministry, it's easy. It's not. I was naive. That's, so don't think I'm saying Pastor James' job is easy, because it's not. But... I just thought, like, that's something I'm familiar with. It was my sophomore year at Treveca. One of the first classes I took as a sophomore was Greek, and I was in the Greek, I was in Greek, and the professor had, I don't know, he kind of went on some tangent that day. I don't even totally remember what he said, but when he finished, I really felt impressed to go up and talk to him. And I go up to him, and I don't, I didn't really even know this guy, but I go up to him and I said, I need to talk to you. Because I think God is calling me to pastoral ministry. Now, I don't think I'd even told Heather that at this point. And so he said, well, hey, do you have lunch plans? And I said, well, I'm meeting my girlfriend at the cafeteria. It was Heather, not to, y'all think there was somebody else. And so we went down there, we stood in the lobby of the cafeteria. Now, another kind of side piece to this story that he doesn't know to this day, Heather had him for a Bible class and she did not like him at all. And so she shows up to lunch and I'm standing with probably her least favorite professor on campus. Now, it turns out they're very good friends and we love them dearly. But at this time, that was not the case. But we sat down and we talked about a whole lot of things that day at lunch. But one of the things he said to me that day was, John, Trevecca will make you a minister, but seminary will make you a pastor. Now, at the time, I didn't even fully understand what that meant. But one of the stories that stands out to me in, in this whole bigger, there's a whole lot of other kind of pieces of these stories. But the thing that, that I want you to hear today, Heather and I got married you know, a, few, a couple years later, a few years later, moved to Kansas City. I started attending seminary. And our first Sunday back at Nashville First, my home church, we walk in the back door, and it would have been like on this side of the sanctuary, the balcony at that church hangs over about half of the, the floor seating. So the balcony's hanging over, and there was, my mom sat right over here in this kind of section. So we walk in, it's our first Sunday back. We walk in, and this man walks up to me. His name was George Prevet. Now, some of you, if you've been around here a long time, that name means something to you, because George had an older brother named Calvin. And Calvin was the first pastor of Gardendale Church of the Nazarene. His little brother, George, greets me. And George walks up and he hugs me, he shakes my hand. And this is what George said to me, and I will never forget it. He said, Pastor, how's class going? George Prevet is the first person in my entire life that called me pastor. And I had been given a new vocation. I had been given a new name. And it was a name that changed my life. And I know that it's easy for me to stand up here and say, I'm called, I'm called to be a pastor. And you're like, well, I'm not, so I don't really count. That is not true. Every single one of us is called to something. And every single one of us, I think y'all know me well enough to know that I'm telling you the absolute truth. Some of you in schools, in hospitals, in wherever it is, in, in retirement, wherever it is, God can do phenomenal things through you exactly where you are. You don't have to be a pastor. And some of you can have more of an impact where you are than I can even have. 
So God has called us. A disciple is someone who has been changed by that interaction with Jesus. Our lives have been changed. We have been given a new vocation. We have been given a new life. Thirdly, a disciple is someone committed to the mission of Christ. A disciple is someone who is committed to the mission of Christ. When we spend time with Jesus, we fall in love with what Jesus is in love with. And do y'all know what Jesus is in love with? You, people. Jesus is in love with the person at work that drives you crazy. Jesus is in love with the person at work that just always complains about everything. Jesus is in love with your neighbor that drives you crazy, that's literally started mowing their yard one morning at 5 a.m. It happened at our house. Jesus still loves them. I didn't at the moment, but Jesus does. That Jesus loves people. And when I love Jesus, I fall in love with what he is in love with. And that is other people. That doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean I don't get mad. It doesn't mean that you can mow your yard at five in the morning. What it means is, is that I am captured and I am captivated with what he is in love with. And he's in love with other people. So to be a disciple, okay, it's up there. Just, this is just what we pulled out of this verse. I could preach a whole lot more on this, but this is just coming out of this verse. So don't, don't miss my illustration. Jesus is down on his hands and knees. He's on the other side of that hole saying, come out. Let me show you what life is really about. What life is really about is being a disciple. And what being a disciple is, is being one who follows Jesus. It's being someone who is changed because they have bumped up against Jesus. And it's someone who is on the same mission that Jesus is on, which is to love and to show his life to other people. To be a disciple is to enter into a new world, and it is a world of beauty. It is a world of life. Now, some of you are thinking, Pastor, we have been going through this series on axioms, and I have no idea what today's axiom could be, or I might know what it is, and I don't know how you're going to connect these two things. So let me connect them. We've been going through these axioms, and so I want you to see, uh, this is kind of a summary of all of these things that we have gone through for the past four weeks. This is week five. That if the God of love, the God who is love, is always present and at work, who looks just like Jesus, is meeting us right in the middle of our messy reality, then it follows. Okay? Before I read it, I want you to hear it again. If the God who is love, who is always present and at work, who looks just like Jesus and is meeting you right in the middle of your messy reality or your messy life, then it only makes sense or it follows that God cares about all of it way more than we do. Now, some of you are like, Pastor, I don't know what it is. God cares about whatever it is that you care about more than you care about it. Whatever that mess might be, you think you, carry a, you care about it, God cares about it more. Your family member who's lost and is away from God, it breaks your heart. Do you want to know what God thinks? His heart is broken as well. 
that he cares about it more than you care about it. That whatever it is that we carry, whatever prayer requests that we say, whatever those things that weigh upon our shoulders, whatever those things are, that our God cares about it even more than you do. So what does this mean? Well, what it means is, is that you are invited to be a disciple. But to be a disciple is not something that we are left to accomplish on our own strength. Sometimes we think the bar of what it is to be a disciple is too high, and it should be high. But, but it's not all on our own strength. That God is present in us. God is present with our struggles. God is not working against you. God is for you. He is present. and He has called you. I can tell you story after story of the ways that God has shown himself in my life through a calling, through hard times. One of the other things that we forget sometimes when we talk about that we are not left to accomplish it on our own strength is, is that I don't know if y'all know this, but church, it's a gift. It's a gift that God has given us. It's a gift to be able to walk through life together. It is a gift to be able to come together to worship. It is an incredible gift. Now, what does that gift look like? Well, one of the things that we see, uh, if we go back to our illustration, Eugene Peterson says this very well to us. He said, typically the adults at the warehouse scoff at the tales the children bring back. Now, in this story, in, in Karl Barth's version of the story, he names that little boy. And the name he gives that little boy that cut the hole in the side of the building, you know what his name was? His name was Paul. And Paul cut that hole in the side of the building for Karl Barth, and he invited him to come through. And Karl Barth would tell us, and we know from his writings, that it was the book of Romans that Paul brought him through that hole. But if life is a gift, and if St. Paul is the one on the other side urging us through, what is the world that we are being brought into What is the gift that we are being given? What is the story that Paul wants us to hear? And I think Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the best tellings of that story. That in Ephesians chapter 1, if we can imagine Paul down on his knees, we're all huddled around the hole in the side of the warehouse, and Paul is down on his knees, and he's like, guys, you'll never guess what I've seen out here. Life is a gift, that there is a sky and that sky is beautiful. Let me tell you about the world out here, the world of God's world. Let me tell you what that world looks like. And so Paul writes to us in Ephesians, starting with chapter three, he says to us, blessed is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ, for he chose us to be with him before the foundation of the world. Now, I'm a Nazarene, I'm a Wesleyan, and I can't move past this. Please, please, please hear what is happening here because we're about to read a Calvinist word. When Paul says in this chapter that he chose us, that's a plural word, us, right? That's plural. Who did God choose? 
If you are on the Calvinist side, you would say God chose the elect, those he predestined. I think what Paul is writing and what I believe the proper way to interpret this passage is, God chose us. Who is Paul writing to? The church. Who did God choose? The church. So when he says God chose us before the foundation of the world to be a people that are holy and blameless, how? Out of our own strength? No, in love before him. He predestined us, again, he chose us, he brought us into this relationship and the us is the church. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace and to, uh, that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we have also received an inheritance. Why? Because we've been chosen. Because we are his people. Because we have been predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already uh, put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believe the Holy Spirit is, down, is the down payment. You hear it? The Holy Spirit is the down payment to this new life, to this inheritance, until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Life is a gift. Life in Christ is a gift. And Paul is inviting us saying, let me tell you about this incredible world that you have to experience, this incredible life that you have to experience. Y'all have heard me say it before, to be rich, it's not to have more money than you can spend. Materially, to be rich is to have all of your needs cared for. And Paul says, come, let me, let me tell you about a life when what really matters, what is really about life, all of those things are cared for. They have been provided for. You have an inheritance. And if you don't believe me, the Holy Spirit is that down payment of that inheritance. Come out of the warehouse. Quit looking at the ceiling. See a life that is beautiful. See a life that is rich. Uh, last, last week or so, um, we tried to, or we squeezed in our last college visit before school started. And so we drove 10 and a half hours on a Wednesday um, to Olathe, Kansas, to, for our kids to see Mid-America Nazarene University. And we were there Wednesday, Thursday they did, or Wednesday afternoon, Thursday they did their visit. Friday afternoon we headed to Paducah, Kentucky, the great city of Paducah, so that we could come back and then go to a funeral uh, last Saturday in Nashville. I tell you all that to say this. 
when we were in, when we were at Mid-America, we got to spend time with, with two of our favorite families, the Hams and the Jacksons. Some of y'all have met Ron Jackson. He preached here just before COVID. Uh, Ron and Sharon, he's the biggest Alabama fan I've ever met. The man's insane. But when I'm with them, and when our kids walked around Mid-America's campus, I told my kids both separately later that day, do, do you know how rich we are? It's not about money. We don't know how in the world we're going to pay for school. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. But to have multiple places across this country, Mid-America, Treveca, SNU, where you have people in your life that love you, that you could go and be there and you know you have people that will take care of you and love you, just like your parents love you. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And then on Saturday, we went to a funeral and it was um, my pastor in California, Scott, his dad passed away and it was at Nashville first. And we got to just experience the whole thing again. To know that God has, has put us amongst people and put us in the middle of a church of people that love our family. And it's an incredible thing to be a part of. And, and that life is a gift that we were invited into this beautiful world and we're all invited into this beautiful world to be a part of something that God is doing, to come out of the life the world says, this is what life is, and as the people of God, we say, no, 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 no. That sometimes we get down on ourselves and sometimes we feel like we aren't enough and I want to remind you that Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter one, don't forget what God has done for you. May this be a passage that you mark in your Bibles to know that in those moments when you feel alone, in those moments when you don't think you have enough, that God has done more than you can imagine. The language that Paul is using here is beautiful language to remind us of what an incredible life we have been given by God, that we have been called out of that warehouse to see the way the world is, the beauty of a world with God. My last point is that you are invited to see that new life. That you are invited into a new way to live. That you are invited into a life and it is a life of beauty. And we come here because we know that God cares about us more than we could ever imagine. God has provided for us in incredible ways. So let me end with this statement. That if God cares about all of it more than we do, that means that the stuff that is important to you, your family, your friends, your church community, your job, your vocation, your neighborhood and world, all of it is of keen and specific concern to God. Whatever it is that we worry about, God cares about it more. And God doesn't just care about it. God invites us into a new life. And God cares about all of it more than we do. Every good thing that's worth caring about, everything that you care about, God cares about more. This morning... 
what I want to invite you into is into that life. If, if I have to get down on my hands and knees and invite you through the hole, I want to invite you, I'm not going to do that, but I want to invite you through the hole into a life that God has given you, into a life that God has called us to, into a life that is wonderful and beautiful, into a life of what it is to be a disciple. The words of Christ are simple. Follow me. Walk after me, and I will change your life. I will give you something new to do in life, something that is fulfilling, something that is beautiful, something that is worth striving after. And I will invite you into a beautiful and new life. Today, as we come, that is my, my hope and my prayer for us. Is that as we close, that if you would like to pray with, uh, with a pastor, that Pastor James will be right down here. If, if you need to pray for anything, uh, if you need to say, you know what, James, I've never, I've never accepted Christ and, and I've never known what it was to follow after him. James would love to pray with you about that. If you'd like to be anointed for healing today, I will be happy to pray with you down at this altar, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever that healing is, I would love the opportunity to pray with you. But as we sing, for some of us, we, we might just need to find a place. A place to say, God, I, I have carried all of this. Last week we talked about messy reality. I've carried all of this way too long, way too hard. God, I forget that you care about it too. And God, it's not just that you care about it. You care about it more than I could ever care about it. And God, I, I want to give it to you and I want to follow after you. I want to be reminded of what it is to be a disciple. I want to be reminded what it is to live a new life. Lord, lead my life. Give me a life of beauty. Give me a new vocation. Give me a life that is striving after you. And some of us might just need to come and just find a place to be on our hands and knees and just say, Lord, take my life. Do with it what you want. Let us stand as we sing.